I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Our text this morning is verses 1 through 5. 1 through 5. I know I've been taking larger chunks in weeks past, whole chapters, but... Um, well, I'll just admit it. This is hard for me. So, um, and so it challenges every bit of my, uh, my training in uh, Bible study and exposition. So um, we're going to just deal with five verses today. Revelation chapter five, verse, or five, chapter eight, one through five. Let's give our attention to God's word being read. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? I invite you to do so as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. God, this is your word breathed out, as it were, by your Spirit, and it is for us. And at the beginning of this book, it told us that if we read it, we're blessed. And so, Father, we want that blessing, and we know that we are blessed in reading it. Father, as we seek to study it together, as we seek to understand it, Lord, the overarching message is what we're asking to get through, which is that Christ is exalted. And so, Lord, would you uh, strengthen us all, give us ears to hear what you're saying, above the voice of a mere man, Father, what you are speaking to us. And we ask, Father, that you would just grant us grace now in this time, uh, thinking about your word and ruminating on it, uh, that we, as a result of hearing, would be made more like Christ, even as we sang, that you would change our hearts, make them ever new. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, having read uh, these first five verses of chapter 8, this is, uh, I'll remind you, it's following um, the six seals of the scroll being opened. And then uh, last time, the identification of those that the Lord will protect ultimately from his wrath. And there's this, there's this pause. It's a sort of a, a preparatory explanation before the trumpets are sounded. Now, if you look ahead in your Bibles, and uh, there's, we've, we've, we've seen the lamb, opening the seals. And of course, this is a vision. If you're joining us for the first time as we're unpacking the book of Revelation, uh, there's some uh, fantastic imagery in this book. And, uh, and we're, we're kind of right in the middle of it here. Uh, you see the, the seals being opened. We're going to see the trumpets. And towards the end of this, there are these bowls. Uh, and I take it from John's vision here in Revelation that what he is receiving from, from the Lord is a kind of an overarching picture of what's going to happen on the earth between the first and second advent of the Lord Jesus. What I mean by that is the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus until his return at the end of time when everything's wrapped up. So he's seeing a kind of an overarching picture in this vision 
And that's what these seals and trumpets and bowls, in, in my view, that's what it represents. And I've got to say this as well, and if you've studied these things, you'll know that Bible scholars do not agree in the timing of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. And, and some say that they are entirely future to us, so none of it has happened at all. Uh, some say that they are temporally sequential. That is to say, in the way that John sees them, that's how they're going to unfold in history. First the, first the seals, then the trumpets, then the bowls. Um, others see them as parallel. So stated this way, that the trumpets, again, we had to look ahead at the bowls, you'll see some, some commonalities in, uh, in the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and, and this is the reason why some hold them to be parallel, so that the trumpets then ultimately are a recapitulation, a sort of a restatement of what happens in the seals, and the bowls then are a recapitulation from a slightly different perspective of what happens in the trumpets. Others have the view that they have differing beginning points, still parallel, but differing beginning points, but culminate at the, at the second coming of Jesus in his final glorious judgment. So where I stand on this, I, mean, I think I'm inclined to see them as somewhat parallel. My confidence in this position is not ironclad. I will admit that too. But here's what I am sure of. Here's what I'm absolutely sure of. And I think most expositors, most Bible uh, commentators will agree that Revelation and this book being, being full of these Old Testament images, and there's a lot of mystery. What it's meant to do, it's meant to drive us to this conclusion. It's the conclusion that despite suffering and persecution for God's people, in spite of that, Jesus will be victorious. Jesus will vindicate his own name, and he will secure forever his own people. He will judge the unrighteous. And that is all, it's not all who have ever sinned, but all who have rejected his, his vicarious and atoning death. So we're all sinners. We're all in the camp of the unrighteous. That's our default. But for all of us who've looked to Christ in faith and have trusted that his death on the cross was atoning, was forgiving, was, was uh, as we believed what he has accomplished, it restores that relationship with God. But the unrighteous are those who have rejected that. All of this culminates in a, in a glorious eternal existence, in a renewed creation, a renewed creation, where we who belong to the Lord will enjoy and worship him forever. Everyone, for the most part, agrees on that. And so as we, we consider just this passage, these five verses today, I want to consider this section of Scripture. And it broke out for me in, in four parts. So I'm just, I've got these words to kind of head off my sections here. First of all, silence. Then my next heading is announcing victory. Fragrant prayer. And then finally, fire. Those, those four. Silence, announcing victory, fragrant prayer, and fire. That's kind of where I'm going this morning. Let's deal with the silence first. And we can see that in the text. Now, it's an old expression. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've even said it. Silence is golden, right? And that's especially true for a mom who is, who's been mediating disputes between her children all day long. The end of the day when they're in bed, like, oh, that silence is just beautiful. Silence also is what you hear or don't hear at the beginning of a ceremony, right? There's some sense of importance of what's going on. Or, or when a conductor 
taps his baton. There's silence. Now, I admit that there are times that silence is painful. Maybe you experience this because it amplifies loneliness. But there are other times when the, the absence of voices, the absence of music or sounds of any kind is simply the most appropriate thing. And with the opening of the seventh seal, I take it that silence is the most appropriate thing. I'll remind you what it says in the text. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. A half an hour. It's not a long time. For a little child, it would seem like an eternity, but it's also not a short time. And John says, about. So it's approximate. That's what it felt like to him. Now, immediately preceding this, John saw this innumerable multitude, what I would say is the new Israel, the new covenant people of God. They're declaring very loudly, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so this is a, a praise and worship event like we've never seen on earth. The angels there are agreeing. So I, I take it that it's this thunderous, glorious praise. But as this vision continues, the Lamb, and this is representing in his vision, the Lamb, seeing the Lamb as though had, he had been slain, representing the Son of God, representing the Son of God who was crucified but is now raised. He opens that seventh seal, and the most appropriate thing to happen in that moment is silence. Silence for about a half an hour. Now why? Why the silence? I, I say it's appropriate, but the text does not tell us why. And so I'm just going to go with some sanctified speculation here. I, I think it's a holy moment. First of all, there's this reverence. The silence, I think, implies this reverence for the Lamb. The reverence for the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the one who was crucified for sin who was raised to life for our justification, taking the consequence of sin into the grave, leaving it there for all who would trust in him. Now it has been given to him to judge. He has been judged. Now he stands as judge. This is a holy moment, as it says in John 5.22, about his judging. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. This is his role. This is his responsibility. He, he died as Savior. He is raised as Lord, and he's coming back as judge. So there's the reverence. But secondly, I think that silence represents the patience of God. The patience of God. The Lamb of God is not capricious in his judgments. Not all of us, I'm sure, have had times when when a quick response in anger to someone doing something or some sense of injustice. And I have to confess, as a parent, I've overreacted to the, you know, when my children were younger, in an angry way, an outburst that, that was inappropriate. Kids sitting here nodding. Yeah. But God, God doesn't take vengeance that way as a kind of a, just a knee-jerk response. He's not capricious. He's measured. The Lamb of God is patient. He is absolutely righteous in his response to evil. And God does not need to consult with anyone about his plans. 
And that silence is, is yet another reminder, I take it, that God is slow to anger. He has been slow to anger. That's Exodus 24, 6, if you want to look that up. Just an example of this slowness. When, when God determined to judge the cities of the plain, so this is in the Old Testament, Genesis. That included Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story. Abraham negotiated with the Lord for the sake of any in the city that may be righteous. God said, you know, I'm, I'm going to destroy the city. Abraham goes, whoa, 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 whoa. What if there are 50 righteous? And he works his way down. What if there are 10? Well, there weren't. God patiently put up with Abraham's pleading. He appealed to the character of God. And he asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And I take it there that this, this person that Abraham is negotiating with is perhaps a pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, if you will. It's a technical term. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, he asks. It's a rhetorical question. Yes, of course he will. So I think the silence represents that patience of God. Third, I think there's a weightiness. The silence implies that there's just a weightiness to what follows. You see, with this trumpet blast, there is destruction. It's not total, but extensive devastation on the earth. You've got to think about this. When God determines to destroy what he has made, when God determines to destroy what he has made, that's a serious thing. It's a holy act. I just want to give you an example of how, how the Lord talked about this, spoke about this, revealed this to the Israelites. When they were sent into the land of Canaan to utterly destroy at the Lord's command. But here's the language around it. In the Old Testament, you, look, you can look up the phrase, devoted to destruction. You look up that phrase. That's a single Hebrew word, cherem. Leviticus 27, 28 says, and this is the New American Standard Bible, it says, anything devoted to destruction, cherem, is most holy to the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? The Canaanites, those various tribes that God commanded that the Israelites wipe out. It's holy. There's something holy about that. It's a profoundly weighty thing. And that decision must be seen by all who look on to his judgments as a holy thing. God is all-wise. He is all-powerful. And, and what can any created thing say in his holy presence when he determines to act in judgment? As we think about our culture, maybe the way in which we have thought at one time or another, there are a lot of people who will stand before the Lamb on the judgment day. They will say, Lord, Lord. And they will be absolutely surprised that God did not affirm their own moral choices because they thought all their lives, well, God wants me to be happy. Or that God did not somehow affirm their self-defined identities, thinking and saying, well, I am what and who I say I am. 
that denial of God's absolute authority to determine what is true and what is not, what is right and what is evil. Denying that, saying, you know, God, you're really a little bit out of touch here. I think I, think I, I know better. And, and really, if you were just to consult with me a little bit, you would see our way. There's that attitude. The lies and the self-deception of people. These people will not bend the knee. And just because they do not bend the knee, it does not change who God is. There is only one who can say that I am that I am. Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The silence represents, I think, ultimately a holy awe for God. And that's what we ought to have, brothers and sisters in Christ. We must have this holy awe for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not only for the immensity of his grace to us, which indeed is immense, but also for the awesome and infinite authority to judge. The second, the second heading here is announcing victory, announcing victory. Now, I can't speak to these matters with, with any authority, as many of you can who are in the military, active and retired, you know these things, but it is obvious to me, and I'm probably not far off the mark here, that our readiness for armed conflict depends on a whole host of different kinds of equipment and skills, right? Jets carrying bombs and troops for gathering intelligence, launching missiles. We have tanks, ships, subs, carriers for aircraft, satellite communications, computer data mining, nuclear ten technology, and I'm, I'm sure there's a host of other things. And, and add to all of that, you know, I know this, is, this happens here, skills for weather forecasting, language training, war strategy, leadership, the list goes on and on and on. And those of you who do these things every day of the week, you can add to that list, but you're probably not allowed to. I get it. But what is probably, what is probably not in the, de the next uh, Defense Department's budget is trumpets. They may have bugles for the bases. I don't know. But I don't think there's any serious attention given to trumpets yet. We look in chapter 2 of our, our um, sorry, in verse 2 of our chapter in in chapter 8, John writes about his vision. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, seven, that's, that's a symbolic number. It's the, the number of divine completion. But why, why the trumpets? And, and I thought about this. And again, when you look at Revelation, you see there's a, a whole lot that's, that's taken from the Old Testament and then, then laid out in this imagery. Why the trumpets? We find that allusion, not illusion, allusion in Exodus 19. You see it also in Numbers 10.8. The trumpet was sounded to call the assembly before the Lord. So you sounded the trumpet to call the Israelites to, to assemble before the Lord. The trumpet was sounded also for breaking camp, right, while the Israelites were in the wilderness. In Numbers 10.19 this is important. The trumpets were sounded when the Israelites were about to go to war. And I, this is where I see this connection here. But I want you to note the purpose, and I'll read this from, from Numbers. You shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may, hear, hear this, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God. 
and you shall be saved from your enemies. The, the trumpets assembled God's people. It called them to be ready to advance on the enemy. But it's also a reminder that the battle was the Lord's. He is the one that would save them. The battle belonged to the Lord. And this was proven out in the, in the victory of the Israelites over Jericho. I just read this recently in my Bible reading. This is where I am in, in my Through the Bible in a Year. In Joshua 6, you see that chapter. Now they've just crossed the Jordan River. Israelites, you know the story, perhaps. They were about to begin taking possession of the land of Canaan by the command of the Lord. Their, their possession of the land was not just victory for the Israelites. It was that. But it was very much also a judgment against the idolatry of the Canaanites. So what their victory over the Canaanites represented was not only their possession of the land, but a judgment upon the evil of the Canaanites. And it began how? It began with seven priests, with seven trumpets, marching around the city seven days in a row. There's that, that divine number of, not number of divine completion. And on that seventh day, they, they marched seven times. And the walls fell, and the Lord gave them victory. So here's what I take. With trumpets, God announces his victory and judgment in advance. The trumpets mean, I've already won. The outcome of the battle, the finality of God's judgments, were never in doubt. So that trumpet blast, that, that announces God's purpose. And that seven is the completion of his plans. Seven trumpets. Now, we return to John's vision. Those seven angels are positioned to do just that. They haven't done that, that yet. But they're ready to do that. We're going to get to the details in the weeks following. But just some few things to note here. All of that is going to happen by God's determination and plan. What unfolds is what God determines will happen. There's no mystery. There's no alternative plan. There's no God ran up against some barrier and had to make a plan B. It doesn't work that way. God will execute his judgment in exactly the way that he has determined to do it. The scroll, if you'll recall, was taken from the one seated on the throne by the lamb. So the father's plan was executed by the son. God is never caught off guard by evil. He is never surprised by the evil actions of men. And he has announced his victory in advance. And he has announced his judgment in advance. And those who are judged, in a sense, will not be surprised either. It's just a matter of time. Well, third, I want to look at the, um, I guess I'm calling it fragrant prayers. Whether a, a sudden thunderclap, there was some thunder this last week that just startled me out of my sleep, but I could imagine what it had been like for, for some little children. Whether it's a bad dream, as a, as a parent, hearing your little child cry out in the night, what that does, mothers, I know this, it evokes in you that deep compassion, and it, it leads you to immediately go to your child's room and, and give comfort, right? Or, or maybe, maybe you hear that your child was relentlessly bullied at school. There's something in you, and if you're a dad, probably moms feel this too, that 
There's something in you, and I, I'm sure it brings thoughts to your mind, probably some unrighteous ones because I've felt them, things that you would never share with anyone about what you would do to that kid who's hurting your kid, right? Never do it, of course. Because what that wells up is that desire to protect, to defend your child, that that's instinctive. Now think, how much more, how much infinitely more is God the Father concerned for his own people? It says in Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion for those who fear him. There's the illustration. Any father shows compassion to his own children? A father shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, what does this have to do with my point? Well, in verse 3 of our text, we see it says there, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now, the significance of the incense, we're told. So what John is shown, all these things, that the golden censer, the altar, all of that, more Old Testament allusions. It, it goes back to the tabernacle worship that was prescribed in, in Exodus. Every morning and every evening, the, the priest would ritually uh, burn this incense. And that oil of incense was this unique composition. It says in Exodus 30, 37, the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It, it shall be for you holy to the Lord. The incense was holy to the Lord because the prayers that the incense represented was holy to the Lord. God is not particularly concerned about oil. He's not con particularly concerned about a smell, but it's what it represents that is holy to the Lord. In Leviticus 16.12, we find there that the censer, that's what was used by the priest in the tabernacle to burn incense. So coals were taken out of the altar of sacrifice, right? They were placed into the censer along with the oil, and it caused that incense to smoke. Now, maybe you've seen this if you've observed Eastern Orthodox liturgy. They still use these, the censers. It's often this spherical kind of gold thing perforated with a chain on it and it's swung around. And the incense then kind of fills the room as the priest walks among the worshipers. Well, John understood in his vision that the censer and the incense depicted, he got it, how God cherished the prayers of his people. It was holy. Prayers were special. And just to give you a sense that this is not some new idea, King David prayed, O oh Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And if you recall from back in chapter 5, verse 8, the elders there were holding the bowls of incense around the throne of God, which were the prayers of the saints. So, so John here in his vision, showing, being shown that the incense uh, are the prayers of the saints. Not, not a new idea. So what do the prayers of the saints have to do with the seventh seal? Why are these together in this image? 
God is not only concerned for his own glory. He is also determined to vindicate his own children. And the prayers of the saints, the laments, the crying out, God does not turn a blind eye to injustice. Now listen, we, we get this. I've had a few conversations this past week with church members who, who feel that they've experienced some injustices. Bosses that have treated them badly or feeling that they've been slandered and, and they're now estranged from former friends or family. I know what that's like. I've experienced it. It's painful. You, you feel like something's been stolen from you. It's impossible to get that thing back. And everything in us, when that happens, wants justice now. We want it to be set right. Now listen, these, these small injustices that I've experienced, those don't even compare to the experience of those who have died for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Not, not comparable. But God cares. Whether the suffering is great or small, God knows the truth. The truth matters to God. He doesn't just sweep it aside. But it has not been given to us to adjudicate these matters. The Apostle Paul exemplified this when he experienced that suffering and, and an attack on his ministry. He explained this to Timothy. He told him, he wrote in his letter, second letter, Alexander the coppersmith, he names the guy, did me great harm. Now what does he tell Timothy? Go get him? No. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. It's not my job, not your job. We can acknowledge the harm, we acknowledge the injustice, but the Lord, the Lord will repay him. So he was applying personally what he taught in Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord says, I will repay, which means he will repay. That's a certainty. And we feel like when there's injustice, like, God, how long? Maybe, maybe I should take care of this one now. Maybe I should put him in his place. I just need you to know. I need, I need all you all to know how this guy did this thing, and it's wrong. Well, What's about to happen with the opening of the seventh seal, in part at least, is the Lord responding to the prayers of his people. He is about to repay. And we see there he responds with fire. Fire. Uh, with the warmer weather, we are, our family, we like to use our deck. We, as much as possible, I want to be out there. And so on, on, on my deck, I have four Four sources of fire. <laughs> I have a grill. It gets hot quickly. We can cook the burgers, dog steaks. So whatever we can cook out there, we cook it. I have a smoker. Low and slow. You know how that works, right? Ribs, brisket, pork butt. Mm, good stuff, right? I have a fire pit. Burn wood for heat and ambiance. Occasional s'more. And just last Christmas, our kids bought us one of these Heaters, outdoor deck heaters, allows us to extend our deck time into the cold nights. Now, I used to have another source of fire uh, 
but due to a Thanksgiving mishap, Kathy's brother's at uh, Kathy's brother's house, I'm forbidden from using the turkey fryer. So, uh, just a pro tip here: you calculate displacement with oil. Just, just something to know. And we get this right: fire is dangerous. It's dangerous. It's destructive. Weapons of war are metaphorically called firepower. And that firepower is used against an enemy really as an expression of moral judgment, right? That's what war is. You've done wrong. Here come our bombs. I know that sounds crass, but that's firepower. It is an expression, firepower of moral judgment. Now, looking again at our text, there's fire. But for what purpose? We see this in verse 5. The angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So, so here in John's vision, after the prayers of the saints are offered to the Lord with that same censer, it is now then filled with fire from the altar and thrown to the earth. The censer that, was, that was, had the incense representing the prayers of God's people, now it's filled with fire thrown to the earth. And I, I take it that what we're supposed to see is this connection between the prayers of the saints, the, the how long, Lord, right? And the judgment. I think we're supposed to see that connection. And, and it also seemed to me that the fire here is symbolic. as it, What it does is it actually sets off a series of natural events as if the earth is, is convulsing. But I think the fire from the altar is significant. I think it represents two things. I think it represents both cleansing and judgment. Cleansing and judgment. Because it's from the altar, the fire is holy. Now first, the cleansing. Just look at the Old Testament. There are allusions there to the cleansing fire. So look back at the prophet Isaiah. This is that we, we often look at this because it's such a glorious vision. The prophet had this vision of seeing the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Chapter 6. Now the Lord there in that, in that, in that vision does not speak to the prophet, but he is immediately aware of God's holiness and his own sinfulness, right? And he's thinking, I'm going to surely die. He says, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, what does he experience from the Lord? Mercy. And how? We see chapter 6, Isaiah 6, 6 and 7. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lip. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It's cleansing. The fire is cleansing. He was cleansed by the burning coal from the altar. Cleansing and judgment, though, are very closely related. Sin is judged and must be dealt with. Now, where God shows mercy, he deals with the sin and cleanses the sinner. Where the sinner is unrepentant, he judges. So the cleansing Fire is also the fire of judgment. Another example from Malachi. This is looking forward to Christ, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. So this is referring to Christ again. He is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's 
fire, and like the fuller's soap. He will sit as refiner and purifier of silver. Well, you get what happens, right? Refining silver, you put heat to it, it causes the dross to, to come to the surface, and you scrape that off, and you have the pure thing, right? And so he is the refiner and purifier here in Malachi to the sons of Levi, as it says in the context. This is the, the priest, the, the temple uh, those who lead the temple worship really as representative of the whole people of God. God's going to refine them. And he's going to purge the sin with fire to refine his own people. God created the heavens and the earth. He said it was good. That's true. But because of sin, a curse fell on creation. And we have to remember, the earth did not do evil. Man did. The problem with the earth is not the creation itself. The problem is the sin of man. But for the sake of his own people, God said he's going to clean it up with fire. This is what Peter wrote about in his second letter. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up, and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, some take it to, to think that the earth is going to be completely obliterated, but this is our eternal home. God will dwell with us here. The Lord Jesus will dwell with us here. So uh, Romans 8 talks about the, 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 the stain of sin being lifted from creation because it's groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. So I take it that this is, this is uh, hyperbolic language to describe the catastrophic way in which God is going to cleanse creation of the sin. Well, I believe that's what's being shown to John. It's what's being shown in his vision as a response to the prayers of God's people who have been lamenting. Those souls, as we saw in a previous chapter in the fifth seal, crying out, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long will you judge, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And again, those who dwell on the earth, that's apart from the people of God. That's, that's the ones who have rejected Christ. When will you? How long will it be before you judge them for all of the injustice? So brothers and sisters in Christ, know this. God hears your lament. He saves your prayers. Your tears are not ignored. When we look around us and we're assaulted, you want to follow Jesus. I'm going to talk to those who are faithful Christians. You want to follow Jesus. You want to obey him. But so much around us is tempting us. And, and, and at times we're, we're tripped up and we're caught up and we think, that's not who I'm supposed to be. And we long for it all to be cleared away and taken away. How long, Lord? How long will it be? I was just reminded of Psalm 56. David, King David, he was captured by the Philistines. And he says this, You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And looking forward to that day, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Fire. Fire for cleansing. 
but fire ultimately for the unrepentant in judgment. Now there is a distinction. There is a distinction between those who dwell on the earth, those who will be judged, and the people of God who receive eternal salvation. There's a distinction. So who are the people of God? And so here's a question for you this morning. Are you among the people of God? Or are you among those who will be judged? The people of God are those who have looked to Christ in true repentance and faith. All of us come before God as sinful and stained. All of us need to be refined. And for all of us who have trusted in Christ, Jesus' death on the cross, he took the fire of judgment for you. And if you've trusted in him, that passes by you. And what you receive instead is a, a full welcome into the family of God forever. So if you've trusted in Christ, that means you're among those who will not be judged. And we who recognize him as the Lamb of God who had been slain, the once for all sacrifice for sin, we who recognize that he has rescued us from the eternal consequence of having rebelled against God. Now what do we do? Now we stand with John in silence before him, knowing, knowing that the victory of the Lamb of God is assured because Jesus died and rose again. And while we wait for his appearing, we know that our prayers, they, they rise up like incense, collected, holy prayers collected for the day when the cleansing and judging fire of God will destroy all of the enemies of God and renew this creation to be the glorious eternal habitation where we can truly be his people and he will be our God forever. Lord, haste the day. Let's pray. Father, we, we must wait we must be patient. But I thank you, Father, that you, that you hear us, that you hear our prayers, that our laments are not lost. And God, you will set things right. You will vindicate your own name. You will vindicate the Lord Jesus. And for all of us who are in him, we will likewise experience that joy in that day when every knee bows, when every tongue confesses. So God, keep us faithful to that day. Teach us to be people of prayer who resist the schemes of the evil one. And Father, while we lament, knowing that you are in charge. And so, Father, we teach us not to question you, but to be silent before you, trusting that in your timing and in your plans, you will accomplish all things. And in that day, when we look back and all you have done, I know, we know, we will say, that was good. Keep us faithful to that day. That Christ may be glorified in us. Amen.